We're called and accountable. That's the name of our new series that we start today. We, we're launching the series on the book of Ephesians, and we begin at the very first verse, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the letter. We'll, we'll get there by November, by the end of November, and so we're going to walk together. And I hope that as we do that, that you will be reminded, you'll be affirmed in your identity in Christ and of the responsibility that that brings as being part of God's people. My prayer is that you'll be encouraged as God speaks to you through his word. And so let's begin today, let's just jump in as we talk about what it means to be chosen in him. That's the very first message of the series. And we begin in Ephesians chapter one, verse one, where it reads like this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a letter that is written uh, by uh, an apostle to a church very much like any of the other letters that we find in the New Testament. We, we call them, in the technical sense, we call them epistles. Uh, part of the, the letter writing of the first century in the Greco-Roman world uh, included the author of the letter right at the beginning. He identified himself and then who are the recipients, the intended initial readers of the letter, and then a greeting. And that's what we find here in these first two verses. Paul identifies himself as the author. He says he's an apostle by the will of God. And that's an important thing because Paul is telling us right off the bat that this is not his idea, that he has been chosen by God. He's been sent with the authority of God by the will of God. And, and as, as he tells his story and as he tells our story in a very real sense, we identify with him. We may not be apostles in the technical sense, but we also have been called by God, chosen by God, and by his will, we are here. And then he gives the intended recipients of the letter. They are God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, when the Bible talks about holy people, it doesn't mean people who are perfect. It's not talking about this canonical sense of arriving at sainthood. The emphasis is not on the perfection of people, but it is on the holy God who called the people to himself and set them aside for a special purpose. So that's God's holy people. And the way that God's people respond to this call of God is by faith, full on faith. That's why he says the faithful in Christ Jesus, those who have responded to his grace by faith. And then it tells us that it is written to God's holy people in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a, a, a city, an important city in Asia Minor. It is modern day Turkey. And so this was an important city, a recipient of Paul's ministry and a very influential city as the gospel grew throughout that region. It's interesting that in this letter, as uh, compared in contrast with other letters of Paul, there is no specific problem that Paul seems to be addressing, not a particular problem in that congregation, but, but uh, he's given universal instruction. Uh, there are no list of names or greetings like Paul does in First and Second Corinthians or in Romans where he names people. He says, hey, say hello to so-and-so and greet the people that meet at so-and-so's house. He doesn't do that in Ephesians. It's, it's a letter that is most likely intended by Paul to be read not just in one church, but actually when a letter is written to a city, is written to the house churches in that city. Because remember in the first century, there are no church buildings. There are no cathedrals. The church meets 
streets and houses. And so they passed this letter around the houses in Ephesus, and Paul probably intended for this letter to be passed around in congregations all throughout Asia Minor, or at least that immediate region around Ephesus. And, and so we find it in not specific problems or issues, but we find universal truths that apply to all churches, including Calvary Baptist Church in McAllen. That's the great thing. The Holy Spirit has, has preserved this letter for us that was written to first century people in the area of Turkey for us, and it applies to us here at McAllen in 2019. There's something that we can draw from it. Isn't that great? The greeting says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in, in the Greek world, it was common to use a word kind of like grace to say hello to people. In the Jewish world, people say hello by saying shalom. That means peace. So Paul takes these two concepts, this, this Greek greeting grace and this Jewish greeting peace or shalom, and he puts them together and then he gives them a deeper meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a greeting for the letter, yes, but it is more than that. Really, in a real sense, much of what he says in his letters unpacks what it means to experience the grace and the peace that Jesus Christ offers. So that's who the letter is written to. Let's jump into the first portion after the greeting in verses 3 through 14. If you go there with me, it's a long passage, but bear with me. It says, praise be to God to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I'm so thankful that none of my English teachers graded Paul's letters because they would have marked him down for the longest run on sentence in the world ever. When you read the Greek, this is one sentence, 12 verses long. It gives me the sense that Paul wanted to tell us, look, you got a lot of stuff going for you. You got a lot of stuff to be thankful about, and I can't tell you about it in just one verse. I'm going to make a long sentence, and we're going to try to unpack that a little bit today in a limited time. And uh, let, me, let me give you three things. I, I know at least I got to two things in the first service, at least two of them, but I may get to the third one. The first one is chosen by God's grace for God's glory. 
chosen by God's grace for God's glory. This week in, in our home group, we have a WhatsApp uh, chat and, and one of, of the moms uploaded a video of her son who was just sworn into the United States Army. Very meaningful ceremony. And, and so as she was sharing the video, she was just really uh, proud of her son and she wanted us to celebrate with her. And so everyone in the chat group started making comments, congratulations, so what an honor, what a privilege, how meaningful, and, and so on and so forth. What Paul is doing here is he's writing with a sense of celebration. He's saying, look, there, there's some good things that we experience as followers of Christ. And what he's trying to do to the readers is he's trying to stir them up to praise. He is praising God. It is not just a theological statement that he's making, but it is an invitation to rejoice and to praise God for his salvation. And today, we've done that through our singing. We praise God because he chose us by his grace for his glory. Notice, I'm gonna go real quickly through uh, phrases that we find in these verses. Verse four, he chose us in him. Verse five, he predestined us. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse seven, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, according to his good pleasure, in verse nine. In verse 12, for the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Over and over again, Paul is making the same point. And then the one verse that I think packs it all in is verse 11. It says, in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. See, here's the good news. God had the initiative in our salvation. It was his idea first. It was God who initiated this redemption story. By his grace, he has chosen us. Grace means unmerited favor. That means it's not something that we did that made him love us. God didn't choose us because of what we've done. He chose us because it was his will to choose us in his loving heart. Before God chose us, before we chose God, God had chosen us. Before we were looking for God, God was already looking for us. Before we could get our act together, God had worked out a righteousness that he wanted to give us freely. We are chosen by grace. God didn't choose us because we were good. He chose us because he is good. You know, I'm not into the fantasy football thing, but I hear guys talking about it. This is the week where guys are looking at drafting their fantasy football team, right? And they're looking at who's performing well, who's gotten hurt, who's in, who's out, and they're putting their teams together. I just overhear these things uh, when I go eat wings or when I hang out with guys. And one of the things I discovered uh, uh, earlier is that some people are trying to form a fantasy celebrity pastor league. And I thought, okay, that's really, that's really funny. And there's a whole video about it. I'm just gonna show you the first part of that video so you, so you hear this fantasy pastor draft. Celebrity pastor fantasy draft. It's super easy. The same rules as always. No keeper, two round PPR league. What's PPR again? 
pastor performance rating. It's like QBR, but for pastors. Basically, take the number of their congregation divided by the number of satellite campuses. Take the number of times you see them on TV per week, multiply by the New York Times bestsellers, divide that number by the number of minutes their sermon goes over each week. Very simple, that's the PPR. I'm gonna need a team name from everybody. Andrew, what do you got? I will be the non-denomination domination. Non-denomination domination. Uh, I will be Show me the tithe money. <laughs> Show me the tithe money. Okay, I like that. I'm gonna be first in 10%. Thank you. Trip, what do you got? I will be take a knee. Dude, take a knee, come on. For the prayer, not the anthem. It's good. <laughs> Blessings to all of you on your picks. We do the first shall be last system here because we're Christian. Andrews, since you lost last year, you got the first pick. Who do you got? I'm gonna stop it right there because once they start doing their picks, you might get offended because your favorite, you know. But, but, you know, it's funny. The world, the world chooses people based on their performance, right? That's the way the world operates. And, and sometimes it's a highly competitive place where people are given ratings and, 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 uh, and they're stacked in a certain way. Sometimes it feels like a dog-eats-dog world uh, and it's cruel and it's merciless and, and that's the way it functions. But aren't you glad that God doesn't choose us based on our performance? That he's not looking at a performance rating or a, or a five-star kind of thing that, that, where we stack up against each other. He chooses us because of his grace, because of his goodness. I like what Tim Keller tweeted this week. He said, secularism and religion are both about your personal performance. The gospel is the performance of another applied to you. Hey man, thank God for the gospel. Praise God for his grace. We are chosen by God's grace for his glory. Is that a good thing for you? Amen. Secondly, we are chosen in our Savior to spiritual blessings. Now, someone may ask, okay, this word predestined, how does that work? Does does that mean that God has predestined us for salvation? And does that mean that he predestines other people to damnation? Does it mean that if we're predestined, we don't really have a choice? We're going to get saved anyway? Uh, what, What is all of this? How does it work out? There are basically two large theological positions when it comes to election uh, and predestination. One of them is called Calvinism. You may have heard about this. And, and, and then the other one is called Arminianism. Calvin, John Calvin was a Swedish reformer uh, that, that, that taught about God's grace and about uh, election and then teachings became a theological construct after him. And then Jacob Arminius was his disciple and, and he kind of went on a different tangent and, and after his teachings developed and people made up this Armenian const- theological construct. And I'm not going to unpack all of that today on a Sunday morning when you're trying to figure out what you're going to have for lunch at Luby's. I know. But, but I will say this, Calvinism uh, emphasizes God's sovereignty and his his choice of us and his grace. Uh, And then Arminianism emphasizes free will. It emphasizes man's choice in responding to God. It it, it talks about whosoever will, uh, will call upon the Lord will be saved. And and so uh, most churches line up in one or the two or somewhere in between. 
You know, if you're Presbyterian, you're going to be Calvinist. You know, if you're Pentecostal, you're going to be Armenian. And you know, if you're Baptist, you don't know where you are, right? You're just somewhere in the middle of all of that. But, but when we come to the scriptures and we, we have to ask about this, we have to come with humility. It's evident that the author is praising God for choosing us by his grace and perfect will. But it doesn't explain how that happens. It doesn't go into the intricacies of theological, systematic theology. What role does the human will play in God's choosing us? And what does it mean that whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved? Well, I, I must admit that when I come to the scriptures, I come with humility. I, I come with a sense that I may think I'm smart, but I'm not smart enough to, to figure God out that all I can do is to, to understand what he's revealed to us, but beyond that, I, I have to exercise my faith and I have to trust that even though God doesn't explain how he does things, if he says he did something, then I believe him. One of the things that might be helpful in understanding what this passage teaches here about God's choosing is his emphasis on the preposition in him. Verse four says, for he chose us in him. Verse six says, his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we were also chosen, verse 11. See, here's what Paul is saying. God has chosen us in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it, among many things, it means this. It means that God has chosen to dispense his sa saving grace in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he's chosen to give his salvation to humanity through Jesus Christ. See, the emphasis is not on individuals chosen, but on the one through whom they are saved, which is Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. When, when, you, when you go to the Old Testament, you remember the story of Abraham. God called Abraham and he said, your descendants will become my chosen people. Remember that? He said, your descendants will become a nation that I will bless so that they can be a blessing to all nations. And so it, the emphasis was not on individuals, but it was on a people that were descendants of Abraham. It was the nation that God had chosen to accomplish his purpose. Now in the New Testament, what Paul is saying to us is he has chosen Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he has chosen for himself a people, the people, the nation of Christ, if you would, the spiritual descendants of Jesus are the ones that he has chosen to accomplish his purpose. It is his grace that is at work. So I'm not going to solve the theological problems that have been debated for 400 years and 40 minutes, but I will tell you something with all certainty. You can take this one to the bank and the Bible says that those who are in Christ are God's chosen people. That if you're in Christ, you're God's chosen people. We're chosen in Christ to spiritual blessings. That's what verse three says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Those of us that are in Christ are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Listen. All of the spiritual blessings available to you are yours. Maybe you haven't experienced them yet, but they have your name on them. God has already set them aside for you. 
There's nothing that you need to be searching for, a second or third or fourth experience or, or some kind of, you know, renewal or whatever. What, all, all you need is already yours in Jesus Christ. And I want to mention three things that the passage is very clear about as, as spiritual blessings. The first one is in verse 5. It says that we are adopted by the Father. God chose us and then he adopted us to be his children. What a great privilege that is. What a tender expression of the Father's love. He could have chosen us to be his soldiers, his servants, his citizens, and, and we are all that, but, but the most tender image of God's call in our lives is he's adopted us as his sons and daughters. A, a son or a daughter that is adopted into a family has all the rights and privileges of being part of that family. And that's what happens to us. We have a, a loving father who, who provides for us, who protects us, who loves us, who guides us. We have a rich inheritance. We are heirs of everything that God has. That's what it means to be adopted. We're not fatherless. We're not outsiders. We have been adopted into the Heavenly Father's family. It's a forever family in the true sense of the word. That's who we are in Christ. That's what it means to be blessed in him. Secondly, we see another spiritual blessing is that we're redeemed by the Son. That's verse 7. You know, we had a huge debt that we could not ever pay. We had a sin account that we couldn't take care of. Every sin that we ever committed is like a brick in a wall that was being built, dividing us, separating us from a holy God. Our sinful experience, our sinful humanity away from a holy God. But to be redeemed means that Jesus Christ came to tear down that wall. He came to open up the way so, so that this wretched sinner could have fellowship with a perfect and holy God. Because of his death, because of his blood, because of his life that he poured on my behalf, I am now forgiven. Every single sin that I've ever committed, every single sin that I'll ever commit was forgiven by Jesus Christ at the cross. We are redeemed by him. Our chains are gone. Our heart is new. Our spirit is free. We are the redeemed. We are God's free people. We are forgiven. That's who you are in Christ. And then thirdly, it tells us that we are sealed with the Spirit. Verses 13 and 14, we read them a minute ago. Here's the thing. The benefits of being chosen by God, are, we do not experience those benefits until we respond by faith. That's what it says here. God chooses you. Christ does everything necessary to redeem you, but it doesn't become your experience until you say yes until you have faith and you receive what God has for you. You don't work for it, you don't pay for it, you don't do an exchange for it, you just simply open your heart with a faith that surrenders to God's will. And when you do that, the Bible says here that he gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's way of sealing the deal. It is his way of branding you, his. It is his way of putting a guarantee on your life. There are spiritual blessings that we have experienced already, like forgiveness, like being made new creatures, 
like the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've already experienced those. But there are spiritual blessings that are ours that we haven't experienced yet. One day, God will take away your sinful nature completely and forever. One day, God will give you a completely new mind and a completely new heart and even a completely new body. It'll be you, but like new and improved. And, and all of that is part of our redemption in the future. And what God is saying is, listen, there's all of the redemption is yours, but I'm going to give you a deposit. I'm going to give you a guarantee. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. He's going to be in your life every day to remind you that you are redeemed and that I am redeeming you. I have redeemed you and I will continue to redeem you until you're fully redeemed. It is your guarantee. It is your seal, the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Now, how can we be certain of that? The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit confirms it. The triune God has chosen us. The Godhead three in one is intimately involved in our salvation. We're adopted by the Father, we're redeemed by the Son, and we're sealed by the Spirit. All of God is at work saving you. Now let me just mention the third and final point. I'm not gonna be able to elaborate on it, but it is a, that we are chosen for God's purpose and possession. Here's, here's the point of verses nine and 10 that you can read. Uh, we've already read, but you can, you can chew on them a little bit later. Here, here's the idea that, that God has saved us. He has redeemed us for a greater purpose than ourselves. Salvation is good for us. It gives us forgiveness. It gives us hope. It gives us a new beginning. It gives us eternal life. It's good for us. But salvation is bigger than us. The reason that God chose us is not just to make us better people or to give us a better life. He chose us because we are part of a grander scheme. Do you know that God is redeeming the entire universe and one day he will bring all this universe under his feet and it will become one again. It will be in harmony and we are part of that. So our, our role in that is to bring glory to him. Our role in that is to be a part of what he's doing and, and to make a difference in our home, to make a difference in our community, to make a difference in the world because one day he will make everything new. But in the meantime, we're giving people a little taste of what the kingdom of God looks like. The Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the ultimate purpose of human beings? And the answer in the catechism is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Friends, that's our ultimate purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that good? If you're in Christ, you are chosen by his grace, you are adopted into his family, you are redeemed by Jesus, you are sealed with the spirit of God, you're forgiven, you're free, you're an heir of salvation, that's what you are, that's what you have in him. And so you can rejoice, you can be affirmed in that identity. The world will say you're, you're what you do. The world will say you're your failures. The world will say you're your successes. The world will say that they are what you think you are. They'll measure you by different metrics, but the Bible tells you exactly who you are. You're chosen by the God of the universe to be his special people. If you're not in Christ, then today maybe is a day that you can respond.
and you can say, it's time for me to be in Christ. It's time for me to stop being religious. It's time for me to stop trying to be good and earn my way to heaven and to just receive what Jesus already did for me. You can't add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. It's already done and complete. What you can do is receive it and then let it work inside of you to make you the person God made you to be. Would you stand with me for a moment? As you stand with your heads bowed in, in meditation, would you think about how it is that God is calling you to respond today? Maybe as, as a believer in Christ, you, you, are, you need to be affirmed in your identity today. You just say, thank you, God, for who I am in you. Maybe that, that brings comfort or strength for this moment. Maybe it awakens in you a sense of gratitude and praise. Maybe your greatest need today is to receive the grace of God. The Spirit of God is tugging at your heart, telling you that God loves you and he wants you to experience everything he has in store for you. But God's not gonna force himself into your life he wants you to willingly respond, to say yes. Maybe that's your prayer today. Say, God, I know you love me. And I know I need you. I receive your love, your forgiveness, and I will love you back. Maybe that's what you need to do right now. As you meditate, I want to invite you to also prepare your heart for communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a moment. Maybe there is a sin that you need to confess or just tune your heart with the Spirit of God. Take this moment to do so. Once you finish your prayer, then you may have a seat. As you wrap up your own prayer, you can take a seat.